Book Five, Chapter Twenty One of On the Ends of Good and Evil by Cicero, translated by Harris Rackham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. It is therefore at all events manifest that we are designed by nature for activity. Activities are of various kinds, so much so that the more important actually eclipse the less. But the most important are, first, according to my own view and that of those with whose system we are now occupied, the contemplation and the study of the heavenly bodies and of those secrets and mysteries of nature which reason has the capacity to penetrate, secondly, the practice and the theory of politics, thirdly, the principles of prudence, temperance, bravery, and justice, with the remaining virtues and the activities consonant therewith, all of which we may sum up under the single term of morality, towards the knowledge and practice of which, when we have grown to maturity, we are led onward by nature's own guidance. All things are small in their first beginnings, but they grow larger as they pass through their regular stages of progress, and there is a reason for this, namely, that at the moment of birth we possess a certain weakness and softness which prevent our seeing and doing what is best. The radiance of virtue and of happiness, the two things most to be desired, dawns upon us later, and, far later still, comes a full understanding of their nature. Happy the man, Plato well says, who even in old age has the good fortune to be able to achieve wisdom and true opinions. Therefore, since enough has been said about the primary goods of nature, let us now consider the more important things that follow later. In generating and developing the human body, nature's procedure was to make some parts perfect at birth, and to fashion other parts as it grew up, without making much use of external and artificial aids. The mind, on the other hand, she endowed with its remaining faculties in the same perfection as the body, equipping it with senses already adapted to their function of perception, and requiring little or no assistance of any kind to complete their development. But the highest and noblest part of man's nature she neglected. It is true she bestowed an intellect capable of receiving every virtue, and implanted in it at birth and without instruction embryonic notions of the loftiest ideas, laying the foundation of its education and introducing it to the elements of virtue, if I may so call them, which it already possessed. But of virtue itself she merely gave the germ and no more. Therefore it rests with us, and when I say with us, I mean with our science, in addition to the elementary principles bestowed upon us, to seek out their logical developments until our full purpose is realized, for this is much more valuable and more intrinsically desirable than either the senses or the endowments of the body above alluded to, since those are surpassed in an almost inconceivable degree by the matchless perfection of the intellect. Therefore, all honor, all admiration, all enthusiasm is directed towards virtue and towards the actions in harmony with virtue, and all such properties and processes of the mind are entitled by the single name of moral worth. The connotation of all these conceptions, and the signification of the terms that denote them, 
and their several values and natures we shall study shortly chapter twenty two for the present let us merely explain that this morality to which i allude is an object of our desire not only because of our love of self but also intrinsically and for its own sake a hint of this is given by children in whom nature is discerned as in a mirror how hotly they pursue their rivalries how fierce their contests and competitions what exultation they feel when they win and what shame when they are beaten how they dislike blame how they covet praise what toils do they not undergo to stand first among their companions how good their memory is for those who have shown them kindness and how eager they are to repay it and these traits are most apparent in the noblest characters in which the moral excellences as we understand them are already roughly outlined by nature but this belongs to childhood the picture is filled in at the age when the character is fully formed who is so unlike a human being as to feel no repulsion at baseness and no approval for goodness who is there that does not hate a youth spent in debauchery and wantonness who on the contrary would not esteem modesty and orderliness in the young even though he has no personal concern in them who does not hate the traitor pullus numitorius of fregelae although he did a service to our country who does not praise and extol codros the preserver of this city or honour the daughters of erechtheus or loathe the very name of tubulus or love the memory of aristides do we forget the strong emotion that we feel when we hear or read of some deed of piety of friendship or of magnanimity but i need not speak of ourselves whose birth breeding and education point us towards glory and towards honour think of the uneducated multitude what a tempest of applause rings through the theatre at the words i am orestes and at the rejoinder no no tis i i say i am orestes and then when each offers a solution to the king in his confusion and perplexity then prithee slay us both we'll die together as often as this scene is acted does it ever fail to arouse the greatest enthusiasm this proves that all men without exception approve and applaud the disposition that not only seeks no advantage for itself but is loyal and true even to its own disadvantage these high examples crowd the pages not only of romance but also of history and especially the history of our own country it was we who chose our most virtuous citizen to receive the sacred emblems from ida we who sent guardians to royal princes our generals sacrificed their lives to save their country our consuls warned the king who was their bitterest foe when close to the walls of rome to be on his guard against poison in our commonwealth was found the lady who expiated her outraged honour by a self-sought death and the father who killed his daughter to save her from shame who is there who cannot see that all these deeds and countless others besides were done by men who were inspired by the splendour of moral greatness to forget all thought of interest and are praised by us from no other consideration but that of moral worth chapter twenty three the considerations thus briefly set out for i have not aimed at such a full account as i might have given since the matter admitted of no uncertainty 
these considerations then lead to the undoubted conclusion that all the virtues and the moral worth which springs from them and inheres in them are intrinsically desirable but in the whole moral sphere of which we are speaking there is nothing more glorious nor of wider range than the solidarity of mankind that species of alliance and partnership of interests and that actual affection which exists between man and man which coming into existence immediately upon our birth owing to the fact that children are loved by their parents and the family as a whole is bound together by the ties of marriage and parenthood gradually spreads its influence beyond the home first by blood relationships then by connections through marriage later by friendships afterwards by the bonds of neighbourhood then to fellow-citizens and political allies and friends and lastly by embracing the whole of the human race this sentiment assigning each his own and maintaining with generosity and equity that human solidarity and alliance of which i speak is termed justice connected with it are dutiful affection kindness liberality goodwill courtesy and the other graces of the same kind and while these belong peculiarly to justice they are also factors shared by the remaining virtues for human nature is so constituted at birth as to possess an innate element of civic and national feeling termed in greek politikon consequently all the actions of every virtue will be in harmony with the human affection and solidarity i have described and justice in turn will diffuse its agency through the other virtues and so will aim at the promotion of these for only a brave and a wise man can preserve justice therefore the qualities of this general union and combination of the virtues of which i am speaking belong also to the moral worth aforesaid inasmuch as moral worth is either virtue itself or virtuous action and life in harmony with these and in accordance with the virtues can be deemed right moral consistent and in agreement with nature at the same time this complex of interfused virtues can yet be theoretically resolved into its separate parts by philosophers for although the virtues are so closely united that each participates in every other and none can be separated from any other yet on the other hand each has its own special function thus courage is displayed in toils and dangers temperance in foregoing pleasures prudence in the choice of goods and evils justice in giving each his due as then each virtue contains an element not merely self-regarding which embraces other men and makes them its end there results a state of feeling in which friends brothers kinsmen connections fellow-citizens and finally all human beings since our belief is that all mankind are united in one society are things desirable for their own sakes yet none of these relations is such as to form part of the end and ultimate good hence it results that we find two classes of things desirable for their own sakes one class consists of those things which constitute the ultimate good aforesaid namely goods of mind or body the latter set which are external goods that is goods that belong neither to the mind nor to the body such as friends parents children relatives and one's country itself while intrinsically precious to us yet are not included in the same class as the former indeed 
no one could ever attain the chief good if all those goods which though desirable are external to us formed part of the chief good chapter twenty four how then you will object can it be true that all things are means to the chief good if friendships and relationships and the other external goods are not part of the chief good the answer is that it is in this way we maintain these external goods by those acts of duty which spring from the particular class of virtue connected with each for example dutiful conduct towards friends and parents benefits the doer from the very fact that such performance of duty is a right action and right actions take their rise from virtues and whereas the wise under nature's guidance make right action their aim on the other hand men not perfect and yet endowed with noble characters often respond to the stimulus of honour which has some show and semblance of moral worth but if they could fully discern moral worth itself in its absolute perfection and completeness the one thing of all others most splendid and most glorious how enraptured would they be if they take such a delight in the mere shadow and reputation of it what devotee of pleasure though consumed by most glowing passions can be supposed to feel such transports of rapture in winning the objects of his keenest desires as were felt by the elder africanus upon the defeat of hannibal or by the younger at the overthrow of carthage whoever experienced so much delight from the voyage down the tiber on the day of the festival as lucius paulus felt when he sailed up the river leading king perses captive in his train come now my dear lucius build in your imagination the lofty and towering structure of the virtues then you will feel no doubt that those who achieve them guiding themselves by magnanimity and uprightness are always happy realizing as they do that all the vicissitudes of fortune the ebb and flow of time and of circumstance will be trifling and feeble if brought into conflict with virtue the things we reckon as bodily goods do it is true form a factor in supreme happiness but yet happiness is possible without them for those supplementary goods are so small and slight that in the full radiance of the virtues they are as invisible as the stars in sunlight yet true though it is that these bodily advantages are of but slight importance for happiness to say that they are of no importance is too sweeping those who maintain this appear to me to have forgotten those first principles of nature which they have themselves established some weight then must be given to bodily goods provided one understands what is the proper amount of weight the genuine philosopher who aims at truth and not ostentation while refusing on the one hand to deny all value to the things which even those high-sounding teachers themselves admit to be in accordance with nature will on the other hand realize that virtue is so potent moral worth invested so to speak with such authority that all those other goods though not worthless are so small as to appear worthless this is the language that a man will hold who while not despising all else but virtue yet extols virtue herself with her own proper praises in short this is the full finished and complete account of the chief good from this system all the other schools have endeavoured to appropriate fragments which each has hoped may pass for original chapter twenty five aristotle 
and theophrastus often and admirably praised knowledge for its own sake Aerolus, captivated by this single tenet maintained that knowledge was the chief good and that nothing else was desirable as an end in itself the ancients enlarged on the duty of rising proudly superior to human fortunes aristo singled out this one point and declared that nothing but vice or virtue was either to be avoided or desired our school included freedom from pain among the things in accordance with nature hieronymus made it out to be the supreme good on the other hand Calipha, and later diodorus the one having fallen in love with pleasure and the other with freedom from pain could neither of them dispense with moral worth which by our school was extolled above all else even the votaries of pleasure take refuge in evasions the name of virtue is on their lips all the time and they declare that pleasure is only at first the object of desire and that later habit produces a sort of second nature which supplies a motive for many actions not aiming at pleasure at all there remain the stoics the stoics have conveyed from us not some one or other item but our entire system of philosophy it is a regular practice of thieves to alter the marks upon stolen goods and the stoics in order to pass off our opinions as their own have changed the names which are the marks of things our system therefore is left as the sole philosophy worthy of the student of the liberal arts of men of learning of men of eminence rank and power after these words he paused and then added how now do you judge me to have used my opportunity well does the sketch i have given satisfy my audience why piso i replied you have shown such a knowledge of your theory on this as on many other occasions that i do not think we should have to rely much upon the aid of the greeks if we had more frequent opportunities of hearing you and i was all the more ready to be convinced by you because i remember that your great teacher stasius of naples a peripatetic of unquestionable repute used to give a somewhat different account of your system agreeing with those who attached great importance to good and bad fortune and to bodily goods and evils that is true said he but our friend antiochus is a far better and far more uncompromising exponent of the system than stasius used to be though i don't want to know how far i succeeded in convincing you but how far i convinced our friend cicero here i want to kidnap your pupil from you chapter twenty six to this lucius replied oh i am quite convinced by what you have said and i think my brother is so too how so said piso to me has the young man your consent or would you rather he should study a system which when he is perfect in it will end in his knowing nothing oh i leave him his liberty said i but don't you remember that it is quite open to me to approve the doctrines you have stated since who can refrain from approving statements that appear to him probable but said he can any one approve that of which he has not full perception comprehension and knowledge there is no great need to quarrel about that piso i rejoined the only thing that makes me deny the possibility of perception is the stoic's definition of that term they maintain that nothing can be perceived 
except a true presentation having such a character as no false presentation can possess here then i have a quarrel with the stoics but certainly none with the peripatetics however let us drop this question for it involves a very long and somewhat contentious debate it is the doctrine that the wise man is always and invariably happy that i would challenge as too hurriedly touched upon by you your discourse somehow skimmed past this point but unless this doctrine is proved i am afraid that the truth will lie with theophrastus who held that misfortune sorrow and bodily anguish were incompatible with happiness for that a man can be at once happy and overwhelmed with evils is violently repugnant to common sense how happiness and misfortune can go together i entirely fail to understand which position then do you question he replied that virtue is so potent that she need not look outside herself for happiness or if you accept this do you deny that the virtuous can be happy even when afflicted by certain evils oh i would rate the potency of virtue as high as possible but let us defer the question of her exact degree of greatness the only point is now could she be so great as she is if anything outside virtue be classed as a good yet said he if you concede to the stoics that the presence of virtue alone can produce happiness you concede this also to the peripatetics what the stoics have not the courage to call evils but admit to be irksome detrimental to be rejected and not in accordance with nature we say are evils though small and almost negligible evils hence if a man can be happy when surrounded by circumstances that are irksome and to be rejected he can also be happy when surrounded by trifling evils piso i rejoined you if any one are a sharp enough lawyer to see at a glance the real point at issue in a dispute therefore i beg your close attention for so far though perhaps i am to blame you do not grasp the point of my question i am all attention he replied and await your reply to my inquiry chapter twenty seven my reply will be said i that i am not at the present asking what result virtue can produce but what is a consistent and what a self-contradictory account of it how do you mean said he why i said for zeno enunciates the lofty and oracular utterance virtue need not look outside herself for happiness why says some one because he answers nothing else is good but what is morally good i am not now asking whether this is true what i say is that zeno's statements are admirably logical and consistent suppose epicurus to say the same thing that the wise man is always happy for he is fond of ranting like this now and then and indeed tells us that when the wise man is suffering torments of pain he will say how pleasant this is how little i mind well i should not join issue with the man as to why he goes so far astray about the nature of the good what i should insist is that he does not understand what is the necessary corollary of his own avowal that pain is the supreme evil i take the same line now against you as to what is good and what is evil your account agrees entirely with that of those who have never set eyes on a philosopher even in a picture as the saying is you call health strength height beauty soundness of every part from top to toe goods 
and ugliness, disease, and weakness, evils. As for external goods, you were, it is true, cautious, but since these bodily excellences are goods, you will doubtless reckon as goods the things productive of them, namely friends, children, relations, riches, rank, and power. Mark that against this I say nothing. What I say is, if misfortunes which a wise man may encounter are, as you say, evils, to be wise is not enough for happiness. Say rather, said he, not enough for supreme happiness, but it is enough for happiness. I noticed, I replied, you made that distinction a little time ago, and I am aware that our master, Antiochus, is fond of saying the same. But what can be more unsatisfactory than to say that a man is happy, but not happy enough? Any addition to what is enough makes too much. Now no one has too much happiness, therefore no one can be happier than happy. Then, in your view, he said, was not Quintus Metellus, who saw three sons consuls, and one of these made censor, and celebrating a triumph as well, and a fourth praetor, and who left his four sons alive and well, and three daughters married, having himself been consul, censor, and augur, and having had a triumph, supposing him to have been a wise man, was he not happier than Regulus, who died a captive in the hands of the enemy from starvation and want of sleep, allowing him also to have been a wise man? Chapter 28 Why, said I, do you ask that question of me? Ask the Stoics. What answer, then, he said, do you think they would give? That Metellus is no happier than Regulus. Well, then, said he, let us start from that. Still, said I, we are wandering from our subject, for I am not inquiring what is true, but what each school ought consistently to say. I only wish they said that there were degrees of happiness, then you would see a collapse. For since the good consists solely in virtue and in actual moral worth, and neither virtue nor moral worth, as they hold, admits of increase, and since that alone is good, which necessarily makes its possessor happy, when that which alone constitutes happiness does not allow of increase, how can any one possibly be happier than any one else? Do you see how logical this is? And, in fact, for I must admit what I really think, their system is a marvelously consistent whole. The conclusions agree with the first principles, the middle steps with both, in fact, every part with every other. They understand what inference follows from and what contradicts a given premise. It is like geometry. Grant the premises, and you must grant everything. Admit that there is no good but moral worth, and you are bound to admit that happiness consists in virtue. Or again, conversely, given the latter, you must grant the former. Your school are not so logical. Three classes of goods. Your exposition runs smoothly on. It comes to its conclusion, and now it sticks at a rough place, for it wants to assert that the wise man can lack no requisite of happiness. That is the moral style, the style of Socrates and of Plato too. I dare assert it, cries the academic. You cannot, unless you recast the earlier part of the argument. If poverty is an evil, no beggar can be happy, 
be he as wise as you like but zeno dared to say that a wise beggar was not only happy but also wealthy pain is an evil then a man sentenced to crucifixion cannot be happy children are a good then childlessness is miserable one's country is a good then exile is miserable health is a good then the sick man is miserable soundness of body is a good then infirmity is miserable good eyesight is a good then blindness is miserable perhaps the philosopher's consolations can alleviate each of these misfortunes singly but how will he enable us to endure them all at once suppose a man to be at once blind infirm afflicted by dire disease in exile childless destitute and tortured on the rack what is your name zeno for him a happy man says zeno a supremely happy man as well to be sure he will reply because i have proved that happiness no more admits of degrees than does virtue in which happiness itself consists to you the statement that he is supremely happy is incredible but what of your own view is it credible call me before a jury of ordinary people and you will never persuade them that the man so afflicted is happy refer the case to the learned and it is possible that on one of the two counts they will be doubtful about their verdict whether virtue has such efficacy that the virtuous will be happy even in the bull of phalaris but on the other they will find without hesitation that the stoic doctrine is consistent and yours self-contradictory ah says the academic then you agree with theophrastus in his great work on happiness however we are wandering from the subject and to cut the matter short piso i said i do fully agree with theophrastus if misfortunes as you say are evils then don't you think they are evils he said to that question said i whichever reply i make you will be bound to shift and shuffle how so exactly he asked because i replied if they are evils the man who suffers from them will not be happy and on the other hand if they are not evils down topples the whole peripatetic system i see what you are at cried he smiling you are afraid of my robbing you of a pupil oh said i you are welcome to convert him if he wants to be converted for if he is in your fold he will be in mine chapter twenty nine listen then lucius said piso for i must address myself to you the whole importance of philosophy lies as theophrastus says in the attainment of happiness since an ardent desire for happiness possesses us all on this your brother and i are agreed hence what we have to consider is this can the system of the philosophers give us happiness it certainly professes to do so were it not so why did plato travel through egypt to learn arithmetic and astronomy from barbarian priests why did he later visit archytas at tarentum or the other pythagoreans acacritus timaeus and arian at locri intending to append to his picture of socrates an account of the pythagorean system and to extend his studies into those branches which socrates repudiated why did pythagoras himself scour egypt and visit the persian magi 
why did he travel on foot through those vast barbarian lands and sail across those many seas why did democritus do the same it is related of the latter whether truly or falsely we are not concerned to inquire that he deprived himself of eyesight and it is certain that in order that his mind should be distracted as little as possible from reflection he neglected his paternal estate and left his land uncultivated engrossed in the search for what else but happiness even if he supposed happiness to consist in knowledge still he designed that his study of natural philosophy should procure him peace of mind since that is his conception of the chief good which he entitles althumia or often athambia that is freedom from alarm but what he said on the subject however excellent nevertheless lacks the finishing touches for indeed about virtue he said very little and that not clearly expressed for it was later that these inquiries began to be pursued at athens by socrates first in the city and afterwards the study was transferred to the place where we now are and no one doubted that all hope alike of right conduct and of happiness lay in virtue zeno having learnt this doctrine from our school proceeded to deal with the same matter in another manner as the common preamble to an indictment has it you now approve of this procedure on his part he no doubt can change the names of things and be acquitted of inconsistency but we cannot he denies that the life of metellus was happier than that of regulus yet calls it preferable not more desirable but more worthy of adoption and given the choice that of metellus is to be selected and that of regulus rejected whereas the life he called preferable and more worthy to be selected i term happier though i do not assign any the minutest fraction more value to that life than do the stoics what is the difference except that i apply familiar terms to familiar things whereas they invent new names to express the same meaning thus just as in the senate there is always some one who demands an interpreter so we must use an interpreter when we give audience to your school i call whatever is in accordance with nature good and what is contrary to nature bad nor am i alone in this you chrysippus do so too in business and in private life but you leave off doing so in the lecture-room what then do you think philosophers should speak a different language from ordinary human beings the learned and the unlearned may differ as to the values of things but when the learned are agreed what each thing's value is if they were human beings they would adopt the recognized form of expression but so long as the actual things remain let them coin new words at their pleasure chapter thirty but i come to the charge of inconsistency or you will say i digress too often you make inconsistency a matter of words but i imagined it to be a question of fact only let it be clearly grasped and in this we have the stoics as our strongest supporters that such is the power of virtue that all other things if ranged on the opposite side to it are absolutely imperceptible in comparison then as for all the things which they admit to be advantageous and to be adopted and selected and preferred terms which they define so as to mean possessed of considerable value 
when i style these things which receive so many names from the stoics some new and original like your words promoted and degraded some identical in meaning for what difference is there between desiring a thing and selecting it to my ear there is a more sumptuous sound about a thing that is selected and to which choice is applied however when i call all these things good the only thing that matters is how good do i mean when i call them desirable the only question is how desirable but if on the other hand i do not think them more to be desired than you to be selected and if i who call them good do not deem them more valuable than you who call them promoted all these external things will necessarily be eclipsed and rendered imperceptible by the side of virtue to encounter its radiance is like meeting the rays of the sun but you will say that a life which contains some evil cannot be happy at that rate a crop of corn is not a heavy and abundant crop if you can spy a single stalk of wild oat anywhere among it a business is not profitable if among enormous profits it suffers a single loss does one principle hold good in everything else but another in conduct will you not judge of the whole by the largest part is there any doubt that virtue occupies so large a part in human affairs that it eclipses every other factor well then i shall make bold to call the other things in accordance with nature goods and not cheat them of their old name rather than excogitate some new one but i shall place the massive bulk of virtue in the opposite scale of the balance believe me that scale will weigh down the earth and the seas it is a universal rule that any whole takes its name from its most predominant and preponderant part we say that a man is a cheerful fellow but if he is once in rather low spirits has he therefore lost his title to cheerfulness for ever well the rule was not applied to marcus crassus who according to lucilius laughed but once in his life that one exception did not prevent his being called agelastos as lucilius has it polycrates of samos was called the fortunate not a single untoward circumstance had ever befallen him except that he had thrown his favorite ring overboard at sea did that single annoyance then make him unfortunate and did he become fortunate again when the very same ring was found in a fish's belly but polycrates if he was foolish which he certainly was since he was a tyrant was never happy if wise he was not miserable even when crucified by oroites the satrap of darius but you say many evils befell him who denies it but those evils were eclipsed by the magnitude of his virtue chapter thirty one or do you even refuse to let the peripatetics say that every part of the life of all good that is of all wise men men whom every virtue decks always comprises more good than evil who does say this the stoics you suppose not at all but the very people who measure all things by pleasure and pain do not they cry aloud that the wise man always has more of what he likes than of what he dislikes when therefore so much importance is assigned to virtue by those who confess that they would not raise a hand for the sake of virtue if it did not produce pleasure what are we to do 
who say that the smallest amount you like to mention of mental excellence surpasses all the goods of the body and renders them completely imperceptible for who is there who would venture to say that it would become the wise man to discard virtue for ever were this possible for the sake of securing absolute freedom from pain who of our school which is not ashamed to call evils what the stoics term annoyances was ever known to say that it is better to commit a pleasant sin than to do the painful right in our view dionysius of heraclea was wrong to secede from the stoics because of a malady of the eyes as though zeno had ever taught him that to feel pain was not painful what he had heard though he had not learnt the lesson was that pain was not an evil because not morally bad and that it was manly to endure it had dionysius been a peripatetic i believe he would never have changed his opinions the peripatetics say that pain is an evil but on the duty of bearing the annoyance it causes with fortitude their teaching is the same as that of the stoics and indeed your friend arcesilaus though he was rather too dogmatic in debate was still one of us for he was a pupil of polyma when polyma was racked with the torments of gout he was visited by an intimate friend the epicurean carmides the latter was departing in distress stay i beg of you friend carmides cried polyma no pain from here has got to there pointing to his feet and his breast yet polyma would have preferred not to feel pain chapter thirty two this then is our system which you think inconsistent i on the other hand seeing the celestial and divine excellence of virtue excellence so great that where virtue and the mighty and most glorious deeds that she inspires are found there misery and sorrow cannot be though pain and annoyance can do not hesitate to declare that every wise man is always happy but yet that it is possible for one to be happier than another well piso said i that is a position which you will find needs a great deal of defending and if you can hold to it you are welcome to convert not only my cousin cicero but also myself for my part remarked quintus i think the position has been satisfactorily defended and i am delighted that the philosophy whose household gear i previously thought more precious than the landed estates of the other schools i deemed her so rich that i might go to her for all that i coveted in our studies i rejoice i say that this philosophy has been found to be actually subtler than the rest a quality in which she was said by some to be deficient not subtler than ours at all events said pomponius playfully but i protest i was most delighted by your discourse you have expressed ideas that i thought it impossible to express in latin and you have expressed them as lucidly as do the greeks and in apt language but our time is up if you please let us make straight for my quarters at these words as it was felt there had been enough discussion we all proceeded to the town to pomponius's house end of book five and end of on the ends of good and evil by marcus tullius cicero translated by harris rackham read by geoffrey edwards meta coordinated by phil schunver proof listened 
by Isaac Barrows, Millicent, Timoleon Walsh, and Felipe Fogel. Recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards.